Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another new Word Balloon podcast. John Suntress here. Sorry it's been so long. Uh, man, I really expected to get a few episodes in for you during that 4th of July weekend. And it has just been really busy at the radio station for the last 10 days. So apologies that I haven't gotten an episode out since Dan Jerk. It's a great episode, don't get me wrong. But uh, I'm going to make it up to you and uh, start things off this week with uh, a great conversation with Fred Van Lenty. Really great to welcome Fred back. Uh, we talk about his book, Weird Detective, which is great. It's from Dark Horse, uh, an extra large first issue. Amazing start to a cool story. And uh, Fred gives us the lowdown, the behind-the-scenes look on that. We also talk about other works that he's been on, uh, working on uh, with Ryan Dunleavy and some other guys as well. Uh, a real good opportunity to catch up with Fred Van Lenty, uh, even a little King Kirby talk, his uh, excellent play that he co-wrote with his wife, Crystal Skillman. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Fred Van Lenty today on Word Balloon. Of course, Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. Uh, more new people have joined uh, in the last few days, and I really do appreciate that. Uh, we've got San Diego Comic-Con coming up, and uh, subscribing to Word Balloon is a way to help me defray costs. And uh, I'm going to be making some new connections on guests and hopefully sponsors as well. But uh, really, can't do it without you. If you would like to uh, uh, subscribe to Word Balloon, that would be great. If you can uh, spare just a little bit of money, think of the hours of entertainment I give you every month. Is it worth the price of a comic book? Even a dollar? Uh, if you think so, go to wordballoon.com, click on the uh, Patreon ad. It will take you to my Patreon page. And if you want to help out by subscribing, if you can spare a couple dollars, that's awesome. You don't have to. Word Balloon is free. But if you do want to help the cause, I certainly would appreciate it. So thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners. Also today, we're brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Tremendous deals are happening on some really, really great books. Uh, for example, how about The Avengers by John Byrne Omnibus Hardcover? 50% off. It's only $50 at InStockTrades.com. You can also get uh, Star Wars Darth Vader Hardcover uh, Volume 1. That's uh, great work from Jason Aaron, uh, the wonderful uh, Star Wars series. Or excuse me, is this uh, Kiernan Gillen? It is Kiernan Gillen. Uh, my apologies, Kiernan. Uh, excellent stuff. He, he and uh, Salvador La Roca doing a tremendous job on that arc. Uh, all first, uh, the first 12 uh, issues of uh, Darth Vader. And that book is 50% off as well, $17.49. You can get Absolute Preacher, hardcover volume one. Good timing. Garth Ennis, Steve Dillon, 50% off, $75. Uh, boy, it's a big book. Scarlet Witch, volume one, trade paperback, Witch's Road. Our buddy James Robinson, David Aja, it's tremendous work. Uh, lots of really great artists on that book. 50% off, $7.99. All that and more at InStockTrades.com. We'll give you more deals at the end of the show. But uh, check it out for yourself. Great books, great prices. If your orders are $50 or more, you receive free shipping from InStockTrades.com. Okay, without further ado, let us uh, pick up our conversation from uh, about a month ago with Fred Van Lenty. But uh, we're Detective uh, Issue 2 
is uh, coming out uh, soon from Dark Horse. And uh, do yourself a favor, pick up those first two issues and a lot more. From Fred Van Lenti, let's check in with Fred now on Word Balloon. Fred Van Lenti, welcome back to Word Balloon. We had some technical difficulties that uh, aren't worth getting into, but finally you're back, so thank you. It's just another excuse to talk to you again, John, and that's all that really matters. I was thinking about you and uh, and Crystal last weekend because cake was going on here yes, in Chicago. You, you, the three of us went to the, cake, uh, the first cake, I think. I, you know, it could if, if it wasn't the first, it was like the first or second. So I think you're right. How was it? Uh, I have to confess, there were a million things going on in Chicago last weekend, and I did want to go to Cake, but mostly to see Trina Robbins. She backed out. Oh. And uh, uh, I hope she's uh, feeling better. Uh, but that made it easier for me to go to the Lit Fest, the Printers Row Book Fair. And uh, on Sunday, instead of going to Cake, I saw Mel Brooks live. Wow. Chicago was happening. I'm t- and plus the America's Cup was going through town, right? And um, Blues Fest was happening. I mean, seriously, it, like, I, don't get me wrong, we're no New York. Well, but that said, it was a pretty, it was a pretty active uh, summer Saturday in Chicago. I gotta say, <coughs> no, definitely. I, I, I I'm, I, I'm proud of myself if I go to one thing a day. There Sounds you go. Like you cramped <laughs> several things. But I, I had no, and as proper as I'm trying to lose weight, I had no room for cake. So there you go. Hey, how you doing? Exactly. Tip your waitress. But you know, folks, that's my Mel Brooks rubbing on me, basically. I had no room for cake. <laughs> anyway, uh, dude, Weird Detective. It's out this week as we're recording. Congratulations. Uh, an excellent, very extra large uh, first issue. 52 pages? Uh. 46, I'm going to say. Of story, that sounds of good, too. I mean, I imagine it gets up in the 50s with ads and editorials and all that good stuff. Very cool, man. And at a reasonable price. Yes, yeah. The strip originally appeared in Dark Horse Presents, like a lot of Dark Horse's books do. And when we were going to series, I suggested let's take all the Dark Horse material, put it in the number one, and then do an entire additional issue of new material on top of that. And uh, th- and they were like, that's a good idea. And what was cool is they they decided just to leave the regular three ninety nine cover price. So, yeah, man, that's a, that's excellent. You and uh, Kari Andrews with Renato Jones, I think uh, I think it's really smart to do the extra large first issue because in a very good you get a full adventure and and it's like okay, this is the concept. Come join us, or here's at least you know I gave you a full adventure and you're you're not you know the 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 hero or the villain doesn't show up on the last page and it's like all right so my six more issues <laughs> yeah I mean uh, yeah I guess the comics do that all the time I, I also sort of think of it as like it's like the two hour season you know series premiere right so yeah they do in television all the time so it, it's definitely an awesome way I think to give new readers as much bang for their buck as as you possibly it, can and since they are you know the nerdy secret of comics of course is that what costs most is not the printing you know but the talent we already had an entire issue's worth of material anyway that it was already bought and paid for and already been published. So it's also tricky with that where you set up a series in Dark Horse Presents and you're like, well, you know, I, I, I can't even remember when those issues of Dark Horse Presents came out. It was well over a year ago. So it's, yes. it's not you can expect the people who read in Dark Horse Presents to remember anything. So did you do number zero? And number zero is I'm not a big fan of particularly to start series. Um, because again, it's like you've got to cover all the same beats that you would to introduce folks in number one, but then you've also got to then go and do it in number one. And yeah, you, you yeah. What zero. 
Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, really, number one is kind of a fallacy. It, it's not really. I mean, I guess. I mean, I guess you could do if a lot of background setup. Here, yeah. So, and because that's what we did when we did a Dark Horse series called Brain Boy. Uh, oh yeah, okay. started in Dark Horse Presents. Although that was a little different in that it wasn't really a continuous episode. The Dark Horse Presents thing was kind of a self-contained thing. Uh, Weird Detective, the first part of Weird Detective, is basically chapter one of six of Weird Detective. And so you couldn't really just be like, well, I'll just throw, you know, we'll just publish it wherever, you know, wherever in the publishing schedule it really had to come first. And fortunately, Dark Horse saw the wisdom of of not charging people three ninety nine for a reprint of the Dark Horse Presents stuff, but you couldn't leave out the Dark Horse Presents stuff, so uh, we landed on simply doing what would have been issue two as the second half of the first issue. I like it. I think, I, again, I think it's a good idea and uh, it's a good value and it's a, it's a good start. It's yeah. a great story. And, and, and yeah, I mean, it's bonding really well to it, which is great. That's excellent. It doesn't surprise me. I uh, told you uh, in an early, earlier, in an earlier conversation, I'm having trouble talking tonight. My coffee hasn't kicked in yet. Um, that, Get the idea. That, Right <laughs> that uh, it reminded me a lot of uh, the '70s Spectre stuff. Okay, uh, that used to be in Weird Adventure, Adventure Comics when he shared it with Aquaman, and you had like kind of you know Jim Corrigan, and you know really you've got your your uh, your hero in human form, but then again not really in human form right. as we learn. Yeah, we, Weird Detective is about this guy Sebastian Green who looks perfectly human on the outside, has been a long term NYPD cop, and then mysteriously one day suddenly turns into. Sherlock Holmes and Batman rolled into one, and uh, he appears to have been possessed by an otherworldly entity that is out roaming New York City trying to hunt down other otherworldly entities, um, except that he he doesn't really, like, I really wanted an alien character who actually acted alien, you know, who didn't, who wasn't, who wasn't A, somebody who just grew up here from when they were a kid, like Superman, or B so technologically advanced they didn't have to they could treat us all like children essentially not really have any threat i I, what i like about sebastian is that he doesn't really have any clue what's going on (laughs) and is terrible at pretending to be human and his go-to excuse whenever anyone questions how strange he is is he says he's from canada (laughs) which the which his partner and the other um, cops all seem, and all the other Americans all seem to accept just as a matter of course running <laughs> gag in the series. Except that the the, the brass has um, determined that they, they've they've realized it's it's suspicious that suddenly Sebastian has turned into super cop overnight, mm-hmm. and so they actually assign him a partner, a woman named Sana Fayez, to essentially spy on him. She has she has some sort of shady past of her own that the bosses are exploiting, and so. The book is him trying to capture creatures, aliens, without being discovered as one himself, while at the same time, his partner, Sana, is trying to find out what his deal is, and he doesn't want her to, and is sort of determining how far he should go in keeping her from finding out what his deal is. And Sebastian's body that he has taken is is still, uh, or I should say, his his human essence is under wraps, correct? Yes, it's been swapped out. Um, it's been actually sent back in time, millions of years. Uh, the basic premise of Weird Detective is it's H.P. Lovecraft meets Law and Order. 
And uh, there's this great Lovecraft story called The Shadow of Time, in which this body swapping across eons happens. And so our heroic Sebastian is one of these creatures from who used to inhabit Earth millions of years ago, uh, but were destroyed by the very monsters he's hunting down now. And our green has swapped the real green who's gone back way back in time. I don't know why I'm explaining this in such detail. You don't really need to know it. <laughs> but, but uh, uh, yeah. And so, oh, and so Sebastian, the alien Sebastian has 17 senses while we only have five. Well, he claims we only have yes. <laughs> because his argument is that, is that taste, touch, and um, taste, touch, and smell are all basically the same thing. Uh, and so he can walk through walls and he has all sorts of, a lot of this was inspired where this, this sort of began as a Martian manhunter pitch, a year one Martian manhunter pitch, who also famously was an alien who had to adjust, had, well, had to adjust form. and pretended to be a cop for the first day. Yes. Of strip, which was in John Jones detective. Absolutely. Manhunter from Mars is the, yes, this strip was originally called, uh, my buddy Jamal Eigel, uh, and I were sort of cooked up a pitch for that. And uh, and he so Jamal lent me his copy of the showcase of the early Martian Manhunter stuff. And what I sort of loved about Martian Manhunter was it was clearly obvious to me that their their explanation for everything was or their solution to everything. The writers, when they sort of painted themselves in the quarters, they just gave Martian Manhunter a new superpower for like no reasons. So that's why he can walk through walls, and turn invisible, and change shape, and you know. And uh, I, it just it's just so funny to me because it just seems like just kind of random, like robots came up with a superhero, you know, and they're like, well, it, it, he needs a weakness, uh, burp, the fire, you know, sure, why not? <laughs> you know? Yeah, but I don't know, man, I I liked, uh, I read a lot of those uh, reprint, House of Mystery and uh, Detective, I think, uh, were the two that he was in the backups of, and um, and then, yeah, in the 70s, I think, all the Justice League stories, I don't know, the Martian Manhunter always intrigued me. He's uh, No, I've, I've always loved him, and he, he's always been a favorite. Uh, I just was curious to see what would happen if you didn't write him eight-year-olds, you know? Sure. Uh, <laughs> no, definitely. Not that no, and... don't deserve superhero stories. Of course they do. But Of course they do. No, but this is a great, as you say, great uh, police procedural yeah. with, with the Lovecraft bent and everything. And, <clears throat> you know, yeah, like I said, I mean, initially, I'm thinking Jim Corrigan. More than I was Martian Manhunter. Interesting. Is that, was that the Jim Aparo stuff? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was some exactly. Stuff. And Michael Fleischer was the writer. Yeah. yeah. So who's your who's your artist now? Uh, our, my artist is a terrific guy from Spain named Guiu Villanova. Uh, he, I met him doing um, Project uh, Black Sky for uh, Dark Horse, not Project Black Guy. Charles Soul. Yeah, yeah Black Sky. Black Sky. <laughs> Ah. Learn, learn how to pronounce, man. Ah. Uh, but uh, which Much Brain Boy was a part of that. That was sort of Dark Horse's attempt to do sort of a superhero universe. Yes. I remember when you were working on Project Black Sky. So go on. And then uh, – and so Guiyu did one of the web comics. And then I actually – I really loved his style so much I got him on Conan, The Avenger, which was the Conan book I was doing um, and did a very horror – uh, Guiyu and I adapted a, an, a Robert E. Howard story called The Slithering Shadow, also known as Zuthal of the Dusk, which is this very horror story where uh, Conan finds a sort of Lovecraftian beast in an abandoned city, a seemingly abandoned city in the middle of the desert. And I was like, hey, you should write, you should do this book, <laughs> this other kind of, kind of pulp-oriented book. Uh, Weird Detective, which is inspired by H.P. Lovecraft, of course, was one of 
Robert E. Howard's best friends and vice versa. I had no idea. Yeah, they 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 were pen pals. There's a lot of letter, letter writing. We talk about this a little bit in the complicated history of comics. What was I don't know how unique it was specifically to um, pulp magazines, but Hugo Gernsback, who published Amazing Stories, had the what he would do is when he published letters to the editor, he would print your entire mailing address um, in the letter, which today we would be like, what? You know. <laughs> No, but that's great because then he's, he really was building the sci-fi community. That yeah, way. and sort of inadvertently, he was he ended up kind of course, you know, he sort of so, this, so, he, so these people would correspond with each other, you know. So that's how Mark, Mort Weisinger and Forrest Ackerman became buddies, and Julie Schwartz and all these guys who who not just were you know who became the pros and became the editors, you know, out of the fan community. Yeah. You know, really, they were the literally the first generation of fans, and then also the first generation of fans turned pros. So there's a very long history. And, and so there's this, you know, there's a lot of this voluminous cor- correspondence that Lovecraft had. Cause he was one of these, cause he was kind of a, kind of a strange dude. I think both his parents were, were, were institutionalized and, and he died very young and he, he didn't, he rarely left Providence. Um, Ironically, where I am sitting right now, here in beautiful Brooklyn, New York, where the weak are killed and eaten, uh, I am not that far from the home that H.P. Lovecraft had in Brooklyn, which is only about four blocks from me. Wow. Um, and and uh, he got married here from a, to a Brooklyn girl like they moved. But yeah, he lived over on Clinton and Atlantic, which is five blocks from here. Is there any sort of uh, landmark or anything? Because, you know, when I... When I go to New York Comic Con, I always pass this one brownstone, right. and it's awesome. There's a plaque uh, that says this was the brownstone that uh, Rex Stout had based uh, the Nero Wolf Adventures. Oh, okay, and cool. And I was like, that is fantastic. Any, any Lovecraftian um, landmark? There, there isn't. Um, it's obviously still just you know an apartment building that's still used at, for that function today. Um, sure. I think of Lovecraft, I mean, maybe he did write some of his if he, if he, I think if he, if it was more associated with more of the work, I, I, I think that you might have, that people might get more excited about that. I mean, as it, as it is, this part of Brooklyn, um, which kind of juts out on the western part of Long Island, which is where we are. It's all Brooklyn, Queens, and Long Island are all one Long Island, hence the name. Uh, <laughs> you know, the waterfront area and um, where I'm sitting really down to the Gowanus Canal was all considered to be Red Hook. Um, and so Lovecraft wrote a story called The Horror Out of Red Hook. Or was it The Horror? Yeah, I think it was, no. Horror at Red Hook, I think. Which okay. is a very racist story. Lovecraft had a, had a lot of very uh, strong eugenics-esque opinions, which was common for folks at the time and, and, and was heavily into his own Anglo-Saxon bloodline. Uh, the the and so we're inverting a lot of that weird detective because a lot of weird detective the plot and the names is partially inspired by the horror out of Red Hook and, and so Red Hook particularly in this area is, is a has been an Arab uh, and Middle Eastern community for nearly a hundred years and it was when Lovecraft loved here lived here too so that's why Son of Fiez, um Green's partner is an Arab American and, and we're sort of inverting a lot of the tropes. You know the the cosmic horror horror are the good guys and the humans are kind of incomprehensible and evil and and so it's fun the the opening sentence of the book is 
um, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the best thing in the world to me is that the mind can correlate all of its contents, which is the exact opposite of the opening line of Lovecraft's most famous story, The Call of Cthulhu, which is the exact opposite, which was I'm glad the mind can't correlate all its contents because then we'd all go crazy if we knew all about the cosmic space gods and all the craziness that's going on just beyond our perceptions. So, so much of Lovecraft. So now I've just, you know, everyone knows how pretentious I am, but I was very, I was very happy to, to do that because I do have such love of the Lovecraft stuff and his whole mythos from when I was a kid and when I discovered the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game and just really got admired in it. And, um, and once I, once I knew the Martian Manhunter thing wasn't going to fly at DC, I loved the pitch so much I wanted to, to sort of file off the serial numbers and come up with a new concept. And I picked mm-hmm. one artist, and he was like, eh, Alien Masquerading is Human. I think that's been done. And I was like, ah, I, I can see it. I think we would have done it better. But then, I, but then, the, then at some point, the, the, once the idea to merge it with Lovecraft hit me, I instantly was kind of like, aha, like, this is it. This is what makes Yeah, it feels different. different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm with you. No, definitely. And isn't it sad? Because I feel the same way about Robert Howard, where I really admire a lot of his writing. And then, you know, he just is this massive racist. Sure. <laughs> that it's like, oh. And, and I, I remember telling you, uh, Sailor Costigan is my favorite uh, Robert Howard character. And that's a boxer. Boxer, right. boxer on, a, on a merchant ship and going from port to port. So a lot of foreign intrigue. And either fighting another ship's champion or the Sultan's major domo, and and those kinds sure. of stories, and it's it's great from an action standpoint and a foreign intrigue. But then, yeah, every now and then you just run into a you know an unfortunate racial epitaph, sure. and you're like, all right, oh, he's in the Orient. Oh no, <laughs> okay. Right. Well, and 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 it is. It's a shame because uh, you know it's weird because you want to preserve the good and, and obviously you're making something different out of it right. and i'm always up for genre splicing yeah so that's awesome that you're doing the procedural <laughs> and, and the horror stuff but yeah you know i mean that's the thing is some of these guys because of the the world they lived in and stuff you know yeah their their politics and their attitudes don't really work in today's world but you don't want to abandon the art right so it's like what do you do yeah i mean even the, the you know the conan stories i mean the conan stories fundamentally sure. about this white guy wandering around in these various a exotic non-white milieus you know i mean i mm-hmm. in in my in, in the conan stuff i was given to adapt you know he kills africans indians uh afghans arabs and chinese people there you go uh and the implication is because he's so much tougher because he's had to you know he's such a badass because he's had to go through all these trials and tribulations or alternately in other stories, he's confronted by people who are, you know, essentially European, but they are urban city dwelling, you know, coastal elites where we heard that before that he all yeah. that just are completely unprepared for him. He just destroys them. So it is this kind of weird, very relate. It's, it, it's a weird kind of insecurity uh, on the part of a guy living in the middle of nowhere in Texas in the thirties and the twenties. Yeah. Ditto for Lovecraft living in New England in the same period. Uh, just kind of working out these kind of strange insecurities. It, it, fascinatingly, almost 100, you know, 10, 15 years ago from today, we're seeing a lot of those same anxieties playing out again. 
Um, Absolutely. I guess they never really. I may. I don't know if this is a resurgence. They never really went away. But but it is sort of interesting that you, that, that you have those same insecurities. But you know, like you said, what's cool is is that the work outlives the the men the flaw you know the work itself is flawed but it outlives the flawed creators uh and you can interpret them i think about art is you can interpret them and t- make them your own um and and you, and what's nice is is that they they are good works of art and because of that you can they they themselves transcend their own kind of these kind of weird racial stuff that's clean them. Yeah, you know, and you're right, Fred. I was thinking along the same lines when you think of some of the things that happened at the recent Hugo Awards and yeah. and some of the, some of the arguments made. Sure. And then you and then and yeah, and it's like you know they wouldn't understand a Heinlein. They wouldn't understand you know they they'll rattle off a bunch of classic sci-fi or fantasy writers. And it's like yeah, you take a look at the big picture, and it's like. Yeah, their politics are very different from uh, these people that uh, the the honey badgers are objecting to. Sure. So it's it's you know again I'll I'll just say it's very it's very interesting. Who knows? Yeah, you know I mean, <laughs> uh, but but it's fun to reinterpret the stuff, and that's definitely what we're doing. And in, in- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> no baggage. Well, that's the thing. You could seal of approval. I'm excited. Well, you can get to the good stuff without the baggage, and I think that's cool. And like you say, you're reversing yeah. a lot of uh, poor taste uh, tropes that and and turning them into positives. I think that's excellent. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. You I mean you 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 don't ignore the stuff. You just sort of confront it full on, and then you pr- provide also positive examples. I think it's I think it's much more. I think people, particularly in genre fiction and adventure fiction, respond much better to, you know, positive betrayals of individuals as opposed to attacking negative individuals mm-hmm. regardless of what your political ideology is is you just you just you do start to sound like the guy ranting on in the subway you know or or you know is the old cliche what you know used to go on top of the soapbox in the park yes um, so you just got to make it very active and positive and i think people respond really well to it that's that's cool well as you said it's going to be uh, five issues then it is beyond the- Okay, excellent. And that, and is that, is everything all in the can? Because I know a lot of times Dark Horse kind of waits till everything is really ready to be on a monthly schedule. Uh, Guyu is drawing the next to last issue, and, I'll, and so I'm about to start writing the final issue. So it's fantastic. It's mostly in the can already. That's cool. Do you know any kind of vetting that they do in and deciding what Dark Horse presents features they do want to turn into series? It like. Do you, are they doing online polls on Dark? Were they doing that on Dark Horse Presents? Or? Um, I don't know that it's anything more than the than the editorial board over there. Um, okay. Jib Gibbons, who was my editor on the Black Sky stuff, we did a fun um, creator own book called Resurrectionists. Uh, he he was the one who said, "Hey, do you have any more creator own stuff?" And once he really liked Weird Detective, and at one point it was a discussion as to whether or not Resurrectionists or Weird Detective would go first. Um, when he asked me to keep contributing Dark Horse Presents that he was also the editor of, I said, well, why don't, you know, you want to do Weird Detective, let's let's do Weird Hard Detective for Dark Horse Presents. So it's funny because it's kind of the reverse of of the of what you just posed, is that it was going to be a series, which I, I suggested, let's do it in Dark Horse Presents first. And they were like, great. That's cool. The uh, And, you know, I wanted also to point out, uh, I just had um, Bill Shelley on talking about Auto Bender. And he was talking about uh, Otto Bender when he was writing pulps before he got into comics. Oh, excellent! And, and 
and he and he uh, was uh, doing as you said. He was corresponding with Mort Weisinger and Julie Schwartz, and they right. took a cross country trip to go uh, meet Forrest Ackerman. Right. So all that stuff came up in there and everything. Great book. I don't know if you've read that Otto Bender book. No. That Shelley cool. wrote. Uh it's oh my god. It. Uh, I don't know. I'm gonna. <laughs> it's so. It is a very long uh, title. And I even said, geez, dude, because he, he did it, too, with his Kurtzman book. His, <laughs> Shelley's Kurtzman book is up for an Eisner. I think it's a sense of wonder is how it starts. But if you put Bill Shelley and Otto Bender in the search. OK. Or if you look on a if you look at like two episodes of Word Balloon ago, you'll find there it. There you go. And uh, and now it was it was really, really interesting. And I and I do love that part of the pulp story of uh, the fandom kind of finding each other and, you know, the, the guys that were early fans and then becoming the pros. Yeah. In, uh, in the pulps and then later, of course, in the comics as well. The internet before there was an internet. Yes, yes. And Weisinger and uh, and Bender in particular, um, being, you know, friends as kids or young adults. And then, you know, he winds up working for Weisinger. And he's even like, yeah, Weisinger's a jerk, but he's still my friend. And it seems like even though Weisinger treated all the writers like shit, treated Bender pretty good and also left the door open for him. When uh, Bender wanted to do a real space magazine in the '60s, and he's like, "Listen, when you know, whenever you want to come back, you're kind of, you know, you're more than welcome to, and everything." And and the space magazine didn't work out, and it cost him money. He did have to come back, and Weisinger was like, "Okay, yeah, Weiss- keep going." Weisinger is sort of one of the interesting. Uh, I hesitate to call him a villain, but he definitely gets it bad. He definitely is one of the bad boys of early comedy. Oh, yeah. Complica- complicated dude and more jerk than good guy, I would say. Absolutely, man. And didn't he write, like, a, after leaving comics, he wrote a novel? Yes. Which is about, that was like a Valley of the Dolls kind of deal? Of the comic book business or whatever, what? or the publishing business? No, yeah, it was some bizarre, like, tell-all about an industry he wasn't even in. and Oh. And, and he kind of, you know, because, like, all those... It's funny, all those um, – I did uh, – you'll like this. Uh, a couple months ago, I was a talking head. They filmed me here in my at palatial Van Lente Estates. Um, <laughs> Van Lente Manor. Van Lente, stately Van Lente Manor. Uh, funny you say that for a documentary of Bill Finger. Awesome. And um, and one of the points that that I had brought up was that all those guys finger like Weiss in there um you know the comic stuff was for kids and it they always assumed it was just going to go away like any other publishing fad and it just wasn't respectable you know even even before Wortham showed up even before the crises of the 50s right it just it was a stepping stone it was a way to pay the bills it was a day job while you were working to becoming a painter which is what Al, Al Feldstein did, which is what Bob Kane ended up doing, um, quote-unquote painting, by, yeah. by paying other people to paint clowns for him, which is still, like, the greatest <laughs> thing ever. Uh, Harvey Kurtzman, you know, dumped mad as soon as he possibly could when yes. when, when Hugh Hefner offered him a job. Um, and what was funny was sort of the perspective was was the, the obviously, the much of the crux of the documentary is going to be, and I don't know if I'm not allowed, I don't I don't know if I'm not supposed to talk about this, but screw it. I'm talking about it anyway. Everything for Word Balloon, John. I'll risk it all. I will risk it all. Uh, So uh, so a lot of it, obviously, is about the fact that Bob Kane was such a huge credit hog and kind of um, uh, made sure that Jerry Robinson 
who drew a lot of that stuff. And yes, Shelley Moldoff. Shelley Moldoff and a lot of those guys, and particularly Bill Finger, the the writer who co-created Batman from the very beginning. Um, I think it, you know he was the one who came up with the idea. It should be a bat. You know, this is really like basic stuff. He was just like kind of come yeah. weak of it as stuff. You know, Finger was really the uh, you know other than than the look was sort of one of the major drivers of the character and Robin and Joker and a lot of the, the iconic things we think about Batman. And just, he was just another one of these creators who kind of got dumped by the wayside. But what I said was, um, you know, I, I wonder how much Bill Finger wanted credit from Batman, you know, uh, because to him and to these guys, many of them, these were not things to be proud of. So they didn't want to necessarily hide the fact that they were doing it, but um, it's not like they necessarily wanted to advertise it to them. It was, they were symbols of the fact they hadn't achieved what they wanted. Right. No. And Stanley, Stanley always said that. Sure. Yeah. Wants to, wanted to write books and wanted to write movies and instead had to write comics and really was not happy with a lot of his output before fantastic four. You know, I mean, and that's 20, 23 years of work when you think of it before he finally got to Fantastic Four. And yeah, it was an interim job. You know, all these guys you know. wanted to, you know, Bill Finger really wanted to be a novelist. And so I made this point and then I ta- was talking to the filmmakers after we shot and they were breaking down their stuff. And they were like, you know, no, the, the family, the Finger family says Bill was really hurt that he didn't. Get the credit. credit for Batman. It was very upsetting on stuff. And cynical me, you know, what I thought was, well, I didn't say this out loud, but I, I was, what I thought was, yeah, but when did he start to decide that he wanted the credit for Batman? Did it happen to be in 1966? That's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the number yeah. one, you know. Uh, and he wrote, didn't he write an episode of Batman? I know that some, I know that a few of the comics or episodes were based on on early comics that he likely wrote, One but I thought he did. Right? What you are thinking of is that he wrote an episode of the animated series, the the Bruce Tim one. I think. No, wait, that can't be. Oh no, no, yeah, no, no, because he died in the seventies. Yeah. Huh. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up while we're talking, but I uh, no, I, I understand, and and yeah, you're right. And, you know, uh, this was conveniently this was when DC was was getting bought out. This was when Bill Finger was renegotiating his own very good contract he had with DC, which is very unusual um, among comic book creators. Um, although if you listen to Joe Simon, the difference is that DC actually honored the very nice contract he had with them as opposed to the one that he had with, uh, with Timely. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, so it's, it's funny because you wish people would, number one, treat each other with respect and, you know, artists honor their collaborators and writers honor their collaborators. But, you know, you, I, I can't help but think that the difference between these guys who got screwed and the guys who hoovered up all the credit and get their names at the beginning of the movies, the difference them is, is the guys who had shame and the guys who had no shame. Sure. <laughs> and Bob Kane had no shame. Um, to the point where he was hiring other people to paint clowns for him. I've got it up here. Um, yeah, it was the Clock King uh, two-part of Walter right. Slayzak. Yep. Co-written by Bill Finger. Confused with the Clock King animated one. Makes sense. The uh, and he also uh, wrote supposedly scripts for Hawaiian Eye and Seventy Seven Sunset Strip. Hawaiian Eye. 
Yeah, do you know those shows or no? No, I thought you just mispronounced Hawaii Five O. No, Hawaiian Eye was a Robert Conrad show before Wild Wild West. Okay. And actually, these things kind of dovetailed into Batman because they were William Dozier produced television series. ABC had these rotating shows that were detective shows, lots of action, lots of fistfights. And 77 Sunset Strip was Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., who played Alfred on the Batman animated series. Sure. Uh, but he was a uh, he, he his big show was the FBI in the in the late sixties and early seventies. But he uh, he and Anne Margaret's husband Roger Smith, who was a good looking young guy, the two of them were private detectives. Their agency was literally on Sunset Strip in the TV show next to Dean Martin's place, Dino's Lounge. Okay. And Ed Cookie Burns, this uh, teen heartthrob from television, was their wacky parking attendant buddy, but they would solve crimes. Hawaiian Eye was basically the same kind of concept, but it took place in Hawaii, and it was Anthony Ainsley and uh, Robert Conrad, and it was Robert Conrad about five or six years before Wild Wild West, early 60s. He looked great. Sure. You know, I mean, it's him in his prime and stuff. And um, we got the tan, yeah. Jim West. Probably. <laughs> Probably. But yeah, these were these were big shows, man. Uh, and, and like I said, yeah, Dozier, you know, I, Green Hornet really resembles uh, a lot of these, like, sun, Sunset Strip oh, and Hawaiian Eye shows. Okay, sure. Because, yeah, Green Hornet, you know, was played straight. Right. So, uh... It's a strange show. I find that, I mean, I never saw it as as a kid, and I just... Green Hornet? Yeah, I find it difficult to watch now, other than, like, for the six minutes of Bruce Lee Awesome. Yeah, it is, it is boring. I can appreciate that. And especially given that it's, it moves incredibly slow for a half-hour show. Yes. Yeah, that's true. It, it kind of – and then when they – the only good one is when they cross over with Batman. Colonel Gum, yes. And, it, and of course, again, played for laughs. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I remember seeing it as a really little kid uh, after Bruce Lee had died and they would show reruns of it to, you know, market – you know, capitalize on Bruce Lee. Sure. And I liked it, and I it was enough, and especially the car and uh, the turntable. Uh, it wasn't a back cave; it was really just a garage for the Black Beauty and his whatever normal day car he had and everything. But you know, they would uh, they'd flip a switch, and that the turn the car seemed to be on a turntable, and they would flip over, and the Black Beauty was like on the other side of <laughs> where he'd park his normal car. There is something appealing about the fundamental concept that he's a superhero pretending or a vigilante pretending to be a master criminal Mm -hmm. which is such a bizarre like illogical concept when you think about it you know these days we often see the opposite like with the thunderbolts and stuff you know villains pretending to be heroes something i guess i just can't get over the fact he's a green hornet which is my mind just again sounds like early days of superhero somebody's like i don't know the kids like colors the kids like animals let's just throw people together (laughs) But he predates Superman. He's from, you know, oh, I, actually, let me confirm that. But, you know, Green Hornet, uh, radio hero, before he was a comic book hero. I, I hear you. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm not making a I'm, I'm just argument. I'm just saying, in my mind, it just sounds like someone randomly came up with, you know, again, robots programming, <laughs> programming for <laughs> popular culture, just grabbed a column, for, uh, something from the color column and something from the animal column column and sure. threw it together and, and we have our hero 1936 so it was three years before batman i mean because that's a th- like you know why i had a, i was doing a, a different podcast and it was a, a group of hosts who only knew green hornet and kato from that crossover batman episode sure. 
and I'm like, you know, the show was played straight. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm like, no, really, it was. And and, and also, uh, the show was uh, being made at, at a comic book uh, store. And the owner's like, you know, a lot of Batman came from Green Hornet, man. And they're like, get out of here. And it's like, all right, kids, sit down. <laughs> Let's explain when, when, But no, you know. When, when we get over a fight as to whether or not Juice Green Hornet and Batman both ripped off the shadow. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, no, that's the other thing, too. Of course, no, the shadow. I love the shadow. So I'm hearing a possible new live-action Shadow TV series in the works. Okay, okay. I don't know. It's interesting. And Doc Savage, you, I'm sure you heard The Rock as Doc Savage. Sure, sure. I don't really know anything about Doc Savage. I really like The Shadow. I had this great Shadow book when I was a kid. My dad, I loved the radio he'd, albums of the radio show. Me too. Love the radio show. Uh, so, and I think maybe he had there's some Green Hornets on those albums also. So I, I, I got, you know. You you know you're going to be a popular kid at school when you're heavily into radio drama. It's <laughs> really a prescription for welcome to my for world. mainstream popularity. Um, but I think he eats paste. Too. Yeah, exactly. And he's 14. Um, <laughs> but I there was no doc. So my point being, there was no Doc Savage radio show. I kind of liked uh, loved Lovecraft. Never read Conan. I'd never read I'd never read Conan until Dark Horse gave me the job to write Conan. Um, I, re- I really like John Carter. Me too. Particularly the, uh, the comic books. The Gil Kane comics. Yes. Dungeons and Dragons and, and, and all that stuff. But uh, I, I like the shadow superheroes in general in comics, role-playing games in general. I Then I got into heavily into like science fiction fantasy. But, but for the old stuff, really only I really liked Lovecraft, John Carter of Mars, and uh, whatchamacallit, what did I just say? The Shadow. And The, and the Shadow, okay. okay. And like old TV, like The Avengers and Wild Wild West, and I did love the Batman sure, sure. TV show and all that stuff, the 60s stuff. <laughs> Good stuff, stuff man. And, uh, and yeah, so it was weird because I got all that stuff kind of in reprint stuff and got the you know the Jack Kirby, Dave Ditko, Stan Lee Marvel comics and all that stuff, so it's all good. So that led me, John, to my love of comics history. Yes, I was going to ask what's going on in the uh, nonfiction comic world for you, and uh, possibly Ryan Dunleavy. Well, uh, largely Ryan and I are working on a series called Action Presidents. That's um, for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. They're hardbacks, so they'll be coming out from HarperCollins Kids next summer. Uh, and those are each 110 books, humorous. Uh, biographies of the first executives in the style of our previous books, Action Philosophers, and Comic Book History of Comics. But what's cool is, and I don't know if IDW is going to care how much I talk about this, but what's cool is, is it sounds like we will be bringing back Comic Book History of Comics, updated with new material later on this very calendar year Oh wow! of 2016. That's awesome. Um, I think that we're currently aiming for November. Wow. And these will be in uh, floppy comics, like single issues. Oh, that's great. Fun, man. Are you – so are you going past the point in which you stopped or are you filling in details that you left out of the previous volumes? Well, um, the details are not solidified yet, but we are doing a survey of women in comics called uh, the comic book Her Story of Comics. Cool. We'll be looking at different career every issue. Um, and then we're also going to do the prehistory of comics, which starts at cave paintings, uh, 
you know, because the, the original book started in 1898 when the Yellow Kid first appeared. Yes. The, the new version starts many thousands of years before that. <laughs> Interesting. And so I always like to make Ryan draw cavemen, so. <laughs> He's good at it, so. Well, I'm looking forward to the women's history as well yeah. because, um, man, there's there are some very interesting people that you know Dorothy Wolfhawk, the uh, the uh, editor at DC of all the romance comics and stuff, and I try to find people that work with her and, and get a, an, an opinion of her. Uh, you know, certainly Marie Severin and uh, uh, yeah, know, well, Cat Ironwood, and further, I mean, you know, further than that, in, in you have uh, you have Rose. Uh, excuse me, Nell Brinkley, who uh, who did the Brinkley Girl and was hugely influential in the early 20th century. Uh, you had Rose O'Neill, who created the Cupid doll. Um, Tarpe Mills, who did Miss Fury. Um, yes. Yeah, so we're going we're going way back. You know, that's awesome, man. We're going to try to get some cave women in there as well. We want to be very. <laughs> and who could forget? It's like Star Trek. Who can forget Nog of Cave 56? Exactly. <laughs> Who screamed ow as her caveman husband uh, put her hair on fire. Exactly. Well, but she, okay. she gave her hair for a very important purpose. So we just blew her. <laughs> that's awesome. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah, man. So it's not, very, it's very not cool. just the fiction and the horror. It's also the, the horror of reality <laughs> in, the, in the form of nonfiction. Well, looking forward to that. And also, yeah, Action Presidents. Congrats on getting the... Uh, the publishing deal and, and making it into this kind of kids uh, reading uh, thing. That's great. Yeah. Reading thing. We call them books in America. I know, right? But uh, I'm from Canada, so I wouldn't know. Exactly. Yeah, he's an alien. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's very exciting and it, open, it should hopefully open some, some real cool new doors for us, which is, which is super exciting. That's cool. I know you were at a couple conventions recently and uh, our, our one technical difficulty conversation you were in houston for is it space con is that what space it is space city con space city con of course it is how was how was that i had I've never i, mean, been I had show. a wonderful time uh they took us to johnson space center which was amazing wow. um we got to hang out in the mission control the live mission control of the international space station which obviously is live and they were conducting experiments I mean, they showed us the astronaut training areas and and all that good stuff, and uh, that was amazing. And then uh, this past weekend, uh, in between our two conversations, I went to Awesome Con in, in Washington, D.C., which is well-named and a very good time. And, and what's nice about doing this gig is that, you know, and also the whole convention scene has become very competitive. So they give you a lot of perks. So um, an employee of the House of Representatives took me on a tour of the Capitol Dome. Okay. And I got to take photos of me at the House Representatives, uh, uh, their briefing area, you know, their, their press room. Oh, oh, sure, sure. I got to go on the floor of the House, and they showed me the bullet holes where Puerto Rican nationalists shot in in the 70s and all that stuff. And so it's a, it was it's very cool. That's excellent. Um, yeah, I love the Capitol. I got to go in uh, the 90s. Yeah, no, it was and, very cool. Did you have the Navy bean soup? In the cafeteria. I didn't have time because I had to run to the con, but I did get to drive in the little underground tram to connect. Those are awesome. I rode on that as well. Fantastic. That was great. So That's hilarious. You know, my only piece of Kurt Swan original art okay. is a page from a Superman comic, and it's a Lois and Clark page, and they're in the Capitol, and they're in the cafeteria eating that navy bean soup. Very nice. Very nice. 
you know, it was it was inked by Tex Blaisdell. I got to eat in the NASA cafeteria, however, in Houston. Wow, it's called the Starport because, of course, it is. Sure, I had tuna. It was good. That's excellent. <laughs> Did they have any astronaut ice cream or any of the weird like? Uh, Oh, like kind of space food. Did they have astronaut ice cream? They had nothing but astronaut ice cream. Still <laughs> tastes like styrofoam peanuts. Yeah, I don't get that exactly. I'm not really sure how it tastes like ice cream, but all right. There, well, because it kind of like it does like your saliva kind of kind of yeah the pseudo ice cream once you start chewing on it. But I'm not a big ice cream guy to begin with. Okay, uh, but I would say there are many advantages to being an astronaut. That is not one of them. And all the tang you can drink. All the tang you can grab. I don't know if they do. They still make tang. Uh, they 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 get this joke a lot. They go, it's we call it orange drink. All right, fair enough. Like, fair enough. We don't want to like cause any <laughs> trademark issues tang. on this tour. Good stuff, man. I'm telling you. I remember when tang came out uh, commercially as a kid because you know I was one of those original watching Apollo when I was you know under ten. Right, kids. So yeah, it was like, oh man. Of course we wanted to. Well, and they had one of the Saturn rockets that shot the Apollo missions up. Wow. Orbit, and the thing literally takes up an entire – it's just one airplane t- hangar with one rocket in it. And that's wow. how huge it is. And it's one of – it's obvious it's one of the test ones since, you know, the other ones – the actual one is at the bottom of the ocean or whatever. <laughs> you know, it, it obviously <laughs> served its purpose and detached as yes. they were shooting out, out of orbit or into orbit. Uh, that's that, great. I got to be honest. I'm so much more interested in – that period of space exploration than the shuttle stuff or even, I hate to say it, the space station today because it's become very, I don't know, not ordinary because it is still, you know, crazy. Well, you, know, you, people can, are doing you can only be first once, right? That's true, too. And That's they true. did all those this Daredevil stuff and, you know, as pioneers, you know, everybody wants to be the cowboys, not the accountant, you know, who moves in. Two generations <laughs> later, right, in Tombstone or Dry Gulch or whatever. Who cares, you know? Or Jimmy Stewart in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. I- I'm here to be a lawyer in Shinbo. I-, I'm, I was really into the the, um, the International Space Station stuff because early early in my career, the first people to ever pay me to do anything were Platinum Studios. And the first thing they paid me to do was this book called Cowboys and Aliens. I remember that They that. were successful in making a movie, but I did a slew of books for them, and one of them was set on the International Space Station. So I read a whole bunch about it, and and they were doing it. What to me was a really interesting experiment. The guy who owns Bigelow Tea, and this is like they were literally doing the experiment while we were sitting there watching the live feed from from space. You know, uh, the guy. Who, I guess the guy. Who, a lot of these billionaires are heavily into space travel. I don't know. I think maybe they think we're going to come out with pitchforks. Forces at some points, so and they they need a backup plan. They need a backup they plan, need an escape plan. Exactly. Uh, How do I leave the planet? So, because they've scrapped the space station, and now they send up, um, uh, all the supplies and the crew and stuff on these Soviet. They've been using this. Excuse me, the Russian one, well, the Soviet design. It's the same mm-hmm. Vostoks that the Russians have always been using. If you need to do anything bitter, bit, bigger, or God forbid something terrible happens in the International Space Station, it, it's gonna be you know we basically need the space shuttle to build it, but we don't have the space shuttle anymore. So right. the Bigelow T guy has got this these like inflatable um, modules um, that you don't need to build. It's just kind of like that you show up compressed, then you expand the air to them, and they turn into the modules from the space station. The, the same principle could be applied on Mars. 
building structures there, inflating structures there, except the day we were there, they were kind of freaking out because or frustrated because uh, um, it was the first test of inflating the modules in zero gravity in a vacuum, and it just was not inflating. It was like this, you know, they're supposed to be spheres. It looked more like a collapsed mushroom, uh, marshmallow. Oh, wow. Uh, so that was sort of super interesting to watch and, and seeing the engineers and the scientists deal with all that. And um, it's pretty cool. I'm telling I like, you, I like you got to take advantage of this job. No, that's a cool perk, man. Absolutely. Going to see uh, the Johnson Space Center and everything. That's fantastic. And the, and all that stuff happening. I can appreciate that. I, uh, I'm, you know, I like I said, I, I, I'm always fascinated. I like good astronaut stories. I like Larry Young stuff. Sure. Astronauts in trouble. Right. And, Excellent. Uh, you know, and I and I mentioned and, and actually I got a response from a guy in Artist Alley years ago. Uh, this team did a one page comic uh, proof of concept thing called Star City. And it was what if a uh, modern Russian cosmonaut were to time travel back with his craft to 60s uh, Soviet, the 60s Soviet Union. OK. And right in the midst of the space race. And what does he do? Does he you know, I mean, they find him. And, you know, what what an opportunity to leap ahead in the space race at a crucial time. And I thought, wow, this is great. I want to read this comic. I'm like, yeah, we haven't made it. I'm like, oh, and they did. They I, I mentioned <laughs> that word balloon a couple of months ago. And say, hey, man, thanks a lot. Yeah, you know, we were trying to either make it into a, a comic or a movie. And we just did the one page. And they're like, here it is. And they send it to me and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. Make the goddamn book, man. Right. <laughs> like, please. So and again, this is. Um, you know, about about ten or eleven years ago. So now I think it, you, I think the creator owned environment has gotten better than you know. I think maybe this is the time to maybe try and pitch it again. What what would you say, Fred? In the last you know, looking at the last ten years, do you th- is it easier now, or do you think it's kind of still the same? How how is it going for you? I mean, you've got a hell of a body of work, so I think you know from that standpoint. But yeah, I mean, you can only give us your point of view on that. I'm going to give you someone else's point of view. My cat's point of view is. <laughs> No, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think that Image has had an incredible surgeons. Um, I think that the and uh, creator in general is is is, is it super healthy. Um, I think it's rare that you have creators who are not associated with the big two, and have thus been able to sort of build potential readerships much higher to where they could su- be supported by creator own work and and a couple folks. True. Situations exclusively create our own work. Um, um, I think that still the speculators and the collectors and the people who are um, investing, quote unquote, in comics are never too far. I mean, I hear a lot of stories of folks, creators who who get yelled at by collectors when their TV or movie deal doesn't go anywhere because that's why they bought this incredibly expensive variant or whatever either at a convention or eBay because they were expecting them to flip it once the TV sure. uh, show went, which shows they don't really know anything about TV shows or comics or economics or for that matter. Yeah. Uh, or money. But, uh, uh, <laughs> so, you know. My so portfolio I, is filled with variant editions. Exactly. Waiting for the TV and movie yeah, staff. That's how that works. Um, someone was just quoting an incredible crazy price what was crazy to me a couple hundred bucks on something I did I can't remember how it was it was at the DC con anyway uh, that was a pointless story uh, <laughs> but but, uh, but the point being that but a lot of that I think comes from The Walking Dead and sure success with that and um, and that really definitely laid the groundwork so, you know 
that had been a best-selling comic and the trades had been best-selling for of years course. before the show and before oh, yeah. the current boom happened. So it's funny how there's always like there's always a sandman or there's always a um a bone or a or a walking dead that kind of breaks through the consciousness. This, you see the same thing in books and really in movies and TV also where it's it's you know the public we're just inundated with so much stuff definitely more so now than ever that it's just it, it's very difficult to break out and kind of get people's bandwidth focused on you. I understood. Well, the other thing I find interesting is um, I've seen, and I haven't talked to them directly about this yet, but Tim Seeley and Mike Norton were talking about their book Revival. Great book. That, you know, good, great book. Absolutely. And it's uh, starting to wind down. And Seeley's like, yeah, I don't know if uh, he he wonders if the market can sustain uh, a book beyond, and I'm throwing this number out there, you know, 30 issues or something like that, because he's like, you know, it's hard to obviously gain interest if right. uh if it's a really long you know kind of drawn out saga and stuff like that and i can appreciate that because again there's so much competition uh you know the, the big two continues to try and figure out ways of getting back the ground they lost to the creator-owned market in addition to more new creator-owned concepts coming out all the time well, I mean, and yeah you know, Bat- you know batman didn't with continuous numbering for decades and then now we've had two batman number ones and you know what has it been three years I'm quite five, five years. years yeah five years um which you know I, I think that you need to do whatever you need to do to keep the book alive and i think that's true of as true for batman it is for revival i mean it it's hard not to notice and i think i saw tim tweet about this a while back tim seeley mm-hmm. you do notice as a creator you can't help but notice that there's a huge you know there's all this excitement for number one and then frankly about the time the story arc ends slash six seven. You really see a drop off of, if not in sales, then definitely in sort of excitement because it's just hard to keep people's. You know, there's so many new things, so many new number ones have happened between your issue one and your issue eight. You know, that it just becomes a real struggle to keep people's attention month to month. True, I I, I just think too that um, yeah, I, I you know I. It, it, and I should say I'm not I'm not like bemoaning the market. I'm just saying that's the economic that's the challenge that you have as a creator to keep people focused. And Marvel and DC have the exact same problem that yes. I and Tim have, or that I had, that I and Guyu have, or anybody else who's making comics. Sure. No, I agree with that. I I just wonder too. Um, you know, on these on these uh, creator owned books. Yeah, when it when it is like when you're getting into the 30s and the 40s and stuff, it's like, all right, well, you know, I don't know. I think sometimes people are looking for more of a finite story. Walking Dead is an obvious exception to that. But, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, how much room do you have? Plus, you want to keep sampling. And also just the price point. I don't know. Well, and these things change, you know. I mean, Julie Schwartz said that part of the reason they rolled everything out in – showcase like green lantern mm-hmm. and flash and and adam and all those characters that were reborn from the beginning of the silver age was because to, to their mindset kids would trust a number one because it was brand new they wanted to see a nice robust number like adventure comics number 237 yes to them meant dependability and consistency right you right Fr- flash was like that flash flash took over the original jay garrick comics numbering right when it when Barry Allen graduated to that that uh, solo book exactly so and that was entirely because they were afraid that 
if you went back to number one, you would lose everybody because they'd be like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to buy into something that might not go anywhere. You know? Right. And that changed. Right. I probably one assumes with the with the Marvel universe. I guess, yeah, and I mean, just I I I really hope ultimately that, and no, no offense to any of the collectors out there. But really, I, I hope we move more towards, you know, just, hey, I want to read a good story versus, hey, it's a number one. It's a variant. Well, unfortunately, John, you say that, and that is an excellent sentiment, and that's a fine sentiment. The, the economic reality of is a lot of these whales, the collectors are the ones keeping the stores open. And keep I understand that, too. Because of the 20 to 1 variants, the 10 to 1 variants, which are, for those who don't know, you know, you get a special cover. The store gets a special cover for ordering 10 copies of Weird, Weird Detective. We don't have any variants. I'm just... I'm just using that as an example. Or 25 copies, you get an even more rare copy, and so on and so forth. And so a, a lot of series and a lot of companies, their numbers are, some would call them artificially inflated, but that, again, that's just the economics of the situation. You know, their numbers are sustained entirely by variants. And I've had store owners tell me their stores are stayed open by variants. Sure. By the very small uh, number of, you know, collectors with the expendable income who want every variant who will pay a hundred dollars for a very, very rare variant. Yep. Uh, uh, true story. I did a signing for Valiant for uh, when this book, Archer and Armstrong, launched, mm-hmm. and uh, one of our we had a one to one hundred variant that was Neil Adams, and it was a great cover. And then, uh, and one of the guys I was with who worked for the publisher actually just gave it to a fan who drove, who had a great story, drove like six hours, you know, to get to the store to, to meet me and get a signed book and stuff because he was so excited. Valiant Comics was coming back and Sorner was furious because he was like, why did you give that guy the Neil Adams cover? I could, I was going to sell it to him for a hundred dollars. You know what I mean? Like this is money sure. out of my pocket, you know? Uh, <clears throat> so uh, while in a perfect world, I agree that, that it would just be, um, you know, just strength be, of the concept be, of the book. It would be, you know, good books and good stories being bought by good people. <laughs> and not that, please, no, no, you know, no, not, not that the. No, 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 no. But, um, you know, the, the, <laughs> there's a reason why, you know, Tower Records is gone and comic book stores are still there. There's a reason why Borders is gone and comic book stores are still there. That's that true. Is be- That's so funny. That is because, largely because, um, we have collectability. It's collectability, yeah. And that's no, I understand. Vinyl. And you're right. Pardon? Say that's it again. Partly why vinyl is coming back. Interestingly enough, vinyl sales. I don't know if this is true this year. Uh, this is a statistic I read last year. Vinyl sales outpace uh, Spotify and all streaming uh, revenue. How do you? Oh, I was going to well revenue. Okay, because I was going to say I don't know how you quantify that. Well, you. Uh, well, I, well, yeah, revenue. And I guess Spotify, okay, you know, obviously isn't going to be, you know, if Spotify can't generate generate revenue, it's not going to exist. That's true. Um, and I think again, that's collectability. That's the that's being unable to completely reduce the physicality of the art object in a way that, you know, I think has kept books going and that really killed music. That really is going to kill DVD, Blu-ray, etc. You know, um, unless. It, Partly, I think, because those things, the audio and visual aspect of it is not physically beautiful. It's hard to have a, you know, it's hard to have a beautiful DVD case. Like, I'm sure there are a lot of lovely collector's items. Yeah, but not in the way that, like, full-size vinyl album covers were and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh no, I understand, man. No, I'm from that generation. Believe me, I know. And, and books and comics also have a physical, tactile beauty to them. Absolutely, that I think the people who consume them value and will pay a little bit extra for. Oh in yeah, in a way that sort of sustains the industry in a way that it couldn't really. Ted Adams, use. Ted Adams, and I were talking about that. Uh, sure. The pre- CEO of IDW and. Uh, my friend Jason Wood, who's a podcaster, Eleven O'clock Comics. I'm sure you know him. I've been uh, a great, great, great podcast. Absolutely, and you know he calls it shelf porn, and he's right. Right. <laughs> when IDW does those great artist editions, exactly, man. That's what we were I, talking I, about. I, one, like, I don't know where the hell to put it in my house. I'm just like, it's so. Cute. I know, I know. I feel the same, dude. I mean, and that goes back <laughs> to even Wednesday's comics, the DC stuff, which I loved. And when they when the book came out, I'm like, yeah, I want it, but. I don't know how to put that in my bookcase. And the same goes, you got to build a special bookcase for this stuff now. Yeah, I have one. I've got the EC class. I got the best of EC with the Frazetta cover. And I'm just like, Fantastic. it's awesome. And I just kept it in my living room so people could look at it. But after two years of this thing and it falling on people and on my cats, I was like, <laughs> I had to move it up to the room if I killed somebody. Uh, when uh, when, poor Dar- when poor Darwin Cook passed away, I immediately went out and bought the uh, Martini edition of uh, his Parker books. Nice. Yeah. And I mean, luckily that's, you know those absolutes. They're not. They're not as big as the artist editions and stuff. Those are. That's the. That's your tall books. Yeah. You know. And also all those Tasham, excellent books. Not yeah. just the comic collection, sure. but all their books. It's like, man, try and read that on your lap, and yeah. you're gonna cut off your circulation. Yeah, you're gonna freeze <laughs> your sperm first. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, man. Prepare. It's sunrise at Campobello. Why? Uncle John's reading his uh, Tasham DC collection again. Can't move my feet. <laughs> Mother, terrible. Ralph Bellamy's uh, fine performance, Sunrise at Campobello. Excellent. Do you know that movie? I don't. All right, that's when that's when FDR gets uh, the polio. Oh, Too man. soon. <laughs> All right. Eleanor. <laughs> exactly. I'm not saying. Oh man, how's Crystal doing? Good. Excellent. What's happening with King Kirby, man? Your guys' fine collaboration <laughs> that uh, is the stage biography of Jack Kirby for people who don't know. Uh, it is doing well. We had a Seattle production that was very well received. The run was sold out. Uh, we had a production in Calgary, our first international production, and the ensemble there is up for an award in, in that part of Canada, which is awesome. Fantastic. Uh, there's talk about doing it in your beautiful city of Chicago, which would be super awesome, because Chicago yes, is second only to New York in, in theater awesomeness. Oh, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> we'll take that. Just, you know... <laughs> Let me finish, John. Jeez, it's not—it's not all the insults with me. There's also love. There's also love coming here through the Skype screen. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I, oftentimes at cons people come up and go, "Well, you should try and bring it to Los Angeles." And it's like, as the playwright, you don't really—that's not really how that works. Where you're like hustling to like, like writing, you know, generally theaters contact you and say, "Hey, we want to do this. We heard about this somewhere." And agent centered around the stuff but uh but no it's it's been doing very well um and uh hopefully that continues you know would you guys ever consider and and forgive me because i'm sure it would be ridiculously expensive to try and do this but it always seemed to me i always used to love in the early 70s and sometimes even in the 80s when the networks and even public television would really put on a play in that same way that live television used to work sure. in, the, in the 50s and early 60s and stuff. And, um, you know, like, because I really think 
that a, a, a DVD of this would sell. Sure. The challenge with that would be that, um, just saying for sake of argument, it would be the original cast we had here in New York. The, the challenge for that is that actors, actors' equity, the actors' um, uh, their union, uh, union yes. would, has very specific rules preventing from you from doing that unless you very much jack up the salaries that the actors are getting, which is completely Got it. Uh, so the cost, you know, is 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 a little prohibitive. Okay, but and I do remember for you very prohibitive. <laughs> sure. I do remember for your Kickstarter, you had an audio version of, of King Kirby. Did that? Uh, did did you guys make it? Or? We did, but we had to get specific permission from the actors. Same problem. And okay. Secondly, we couldn't. This is sort of the rub: is we couldn't. Um, it couldn't be an auto recording of an actual live performance. That would have also violated union rules. So we had to. Um, they very kindly agreed to do it separately. We did it once, and the recording was corrupted. You may have some familiarity with this problem, but fortunately, uh, Midtown <laughs> Comics was very cool, and they actually um, let us. They actually asked us to do it in their store, so we actually recorded the performance in a comic book store. Uh, and you can actually get that. It's their Christmas, uh, I believe, twenty fourteen episode that you can actually get that free on iTunes. Oh wow! If you go to the Midtown Comics podcast, good to know. It's no word balloon, but. I, I hey man, plenty of room in the pool. That's sure. okay. That's true. I don't get crazy about that stuff anymore. I used to. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> no, I never really did, man. Strike I came, I come from radio. <laughs> well, I come from radio, exactly. Man. No, and also, I mean, you know, it's everybody's doing their own thing and doing it their own way. It's okay. Yeah, I I totally agree. Also, I'm too lazy to try and stop people, <laughs> which helps. Well, dude, I'm 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 happy things are going well, yeah. and then uh, Weird Detective. It's an excellent start, and uh, from Dark Horse Comics, yes. it's out this week, and I highly recommend it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a really good police procedural. It has great weird monster shit in it as well, and it uh, it's it's a full meal of a comic in terms of you know what you're getting, and it will satisfy you in terms of your three ninety nine purchase. And I do think you'll want to get more of this story. It's almost monster sized. So. It damn well is. No, honestly, man, I think I really do. I think that's really, really smart. And I think that's the kind of thing you almost have to do now with the first issue sure. is, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if 20 pages is enough unless, you know, it's a DC or Marvel book. And even then, certainly not a guarantee. It can be restricted. So, no, congrats, man. And uh, keep it up. More uh, more power to you on this Thank one you so much. and others. And uh, look forward to uh, new updates. And uh, can't wait to hear uh, more about Action Presidents when it is uh, – Ready to roll than when the first volumes are Summer ready. Summer next year. And also when, when uh, yeah, when her story, uh, the comic book history of comics comes Without back. a doubt. All right, that's Fred Van Lenti, and uh, I hope you'll check out Weird Detective from Dark Horse and uh, more of his projects as they come up. But uh, that's not it for this week on Word Balloon. More coming up. So uh, thank you for being patient, but I'm going to make it up to you. Uh, of course, uh, we are just a few days away from San Diego Comic-Con. I will be out there uh, doing panels on Thursday at 3 o'clock and Saturday morning at uh, 10 o'clock. And I'll give you more details on that on the next episode. But uh, it's going to be a lot of fun and really looking forward to uh, the panels that I'm doing at San Diego. If you're going out there, please say hello if you see me. And let me thank you for uh, listening to Word Balloon as you do. So uh, I hope to uh, see a bunch of you out there and uh, let you know I appreciate you listening to Word Balloon every week. Word Balloon today was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Tremendous deals are happening on uh, great stories from InStockTrades.com. 
uh, things like, uh, how about the Jack Kirby Mighty Thor Artist Edition? Holy cow, what a book. Uh, that book is uh, at regular price, but it's only $125 at InStockTrades.com. You want to want to grab that while supplies last. Deadly Class, the uh, ex, uh, let's how, what is this called? What kind of variant is this from uh, my my good buddy uh, Rick Remender and uh, Wesley Craig? Uh, it's it's a big one. I can tell you <laughs> how about that. Uh, it's uh, 42% off, and it's just $28. And 99 cents. It looks like a hell of a collection of Deadly Class. Uh, Mystery Girl. More, uh, let's see, Paul Tobin and Alberto Albuquerque. Uh, volume 1 of that from uh, Dark Horse. Uh, that is uh, 42% off, just $7.53. Got to get Paul Tobin on War Balloon. I keep, you know, Ian Coover, Colleen Coover, they're awesome. And I, I haven't had the chance to have them both on War Balloon. I love Bandette. Uh, uh, and I'm saying it wrong, aren't I? Uh, well, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, <laughs> Batman: the, the Road to No Man's Land, Volume Two. Uh, boy, uh, what a great run-up uh, to uh, No Man's Land. Excellent stories there, and uh, this is a nice big, uh, almost 400-page volume. Forty-five uh, percent off. It's just nineteen dollars and twenty-four cents. Just some of the great books that are available to you via InStockTrades.com. And uh, go there yourself. You'll find uh, books that you're looking for at prices you won't believe. InStockTrades.com. Thanks again for listening to today's Word Balloon. Uh, We've got more coming up this week. And uh, all the promises that I made to you over Fourth of July uh, weekend uh, will be fulfilled, but just 10 days later. So apologies to that. But uh, thanks a lot for listening and uh, looking forward to bringing you new interviews uh, in the days and weeks ahead. It's going to be a fun July. It's going to be even better August because they usually come back with fun treats from Comic-Con. So uh, look forward to that and more in the days ahead. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2016. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.